I love singing with Imago Day. I just, personal word. I often say that my favorite time of the week is the song right before I preach. That, I don't know, that mixture of emotions and a great sense of gratitude in my heart. It's kind of my Eric Little, when I run, I feel his pleasure moment uh, for me. And so what a great joy to sing the praises of God and to hear God's word. And we just read, all is vanity. And everybody said, thanks be to God. So we, we should pray, shouldn't we? Uh, how many of you uh, heard that text today? I'm like, wow, this is a very positive, uplifting. It's, it's not a very Caleb uh, kind, of, uh, kind of sermon text. They're not reading Ecclesiastes 1 on Caleb, are they? Um, someone has said that Ecclesiastes seems like it was written on a Monday morning, uh, right? And I would, I would add by a guy who hasn't had his coffee yet. And we need to be prepared for the realism of this book because it does show us that life is hard, it's frustrating, but God is good. And uh, this realism is actually shocking, especially here in the opening. So let's pray for God to, to bless our study. Father, thank you for your word today. We love all of it, and we need all of it to make us more and more like Jesus Christ. So come today, speak to our hearts, and transform us. Bless your church. In Jesus' name, amen. My wife and I enjoy watching uh, some of the same kinds of movies and TV shows, but we disagree on one particular kind of show or movie, and that is those that do not have happy endings, right? Uh, so I actually enjoy movies, not all the time, but uh, movies that have sad endings or have unresolved uh, matters at the end, because to me, that's just... Uh, what life is, right? It involves a lot of that. In fact, I often tell my, my beautiful bride, uh, not every movie should have a happy ending because that's not real life. And she normally retorts something like, yes, but I don't want real life. I want entertainment. I want, I want to be encouraged. I want to be inspired. Well, if, if you're like me and you like a bit of uh, uh, sadness, right, or a bit of uh, unresolved uh, questions uh, that, that leaves some tension, uh, in your mind and heart. Welcome to Ecclesiastes. This, this is quite possibly, uh, you might say, the most honest book uh, that we have. As uh, one famous uh, writer, the author of Moby Dick, said that Ecclesiastes is the truest of all books. And because what it does is it shows us that life in a fallen world really does leave us frustrated. In fact, if you just notice our sermon graphic uh, here, a lot of Ecclesiastes is captured just in that picture. Uh, one of the reoccurring phrases is life under the sun. That is, life in this, this world is uh, it's frustrating. It's, it involves toil and the thorns and thistles that we read about in Genesis 3, uh, pictured there underneath the sun. There's a lot of frustration, a, a lot of, uh, uh, of unmet expectations and disappointment. There's death. Uh, the author of Ecclesiastes uh, continually talks about the inevitability of death so that we may learn how to actually live. But there's also good news pictured there with the bread and the cup of, of enjoying the good gifts of God while we have this, this short life, uh, recognizing God's grace. And he deals a lot with our heart, the search for satisfaction in Ecclesiastes. All of this hopefully will point us uh, to the gospel. It will point us to the things that really matter. Now, I've read the Bible a bunch of times. I've read Ecclesiastes a bunch of times. But I don't think it's until I became uh, what I am now, uh, namely a middle-aged man, uh, that I actually appreciated Ecclesiastes as much as I appreciate it now. 
Because this, the honesty of this book uh, really is refreshing because I think it will help you get a good sense of what you should expect from life and how, if all of your hope is only in this life, then that's a miserable existence. Ecclesiastes drives us to the gospel. Ecclesiastes drives us to the, the paradise restored. It drives us to long for Eden, for Jesus to make all things new. But in this life, right, we're disappointed. We have unmet expectations. Many of us seem very bored with the basic routine of life. Ecclesiastes has something for you. This book centers us on the things that matter, and it helps us to not take little things for granted, but to receive them as gifts from the hand of God. Therefore, it's a book for everyone, all right? Uh, I like it in my stage of life, but I would say if you're a millennial, we have a lot of those here, this is a really good uh, book because it does deal with a lot of unrealistic ambitions and it kind of dismantles a lot of youthful idealism uh, that creeps into our minds and hearts. It's a good book for young professionals. The triangle is filled with young professionals and, and young families as we think about our career, as we think about what we leave behind, as we think about should God give us another 20 to 30 years, what should we be doing with our life? Well, that's, that's this book. And finally, I would say if, you're, if you are a doubter, like you, you actually uh, are not a Christian, you're always welcome here at Imago Day. We've been there. And what Ecclesiastes invites you to do is bring your doubts. Um, uh, many uh, doubt the existence of God but cannot stop thinking about him. And you find yourself in this book dealing with things like death and joy and meaning. And so it, it is a really uh, a book for all of us. Now, with that said, I also should say that it's a difficult book. <laughs> Like the only thing the Old Testament commentators agree on is it's difficult, right? Uh, here are a few quotes. Ecclesiastes is not an easy book. Another one. It's best to be frank at the outset. Ecclesiastes is a difficult book. Another one from Martin Luther. This book is one of the more difficult books in all of Scripture, one which no one has ever mastered, which we're going to do. Don't worry. We will, right? <laughs> 2,000 years of interpretation have utterly failed to solve the enigma one guy says. Craig Bartholomew writes, Ecclesiastes is like an octopus. Just when you think you have all the tentacles under control, that is, you have understood the book, there is one waving about in the air. <laughs> and one of the early church fathers says, Ecclesiastes is like wrestling in a gymnasium. So it's a difficult book. It's a book for everyone. It's, a, it's an unusual book in that Ecclesiastes doesn't uh, note things like uh, uh, the Red Sea uh, event, uh, we don't read of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob, of the promised land. And so what the author does instead is he begins more on what you might call a creational level where he talks about our shared humanity. And so if you're not familiar with the Bible, this is actually a good book because you don't have to be familiar with a lot of the Bible to understand the problems and the questions. And that's why groups like the Beatles could write songs based on Ecclesiastes and because you don't actually need to go to Bible studies on the Old Testament to identify with the struggles that are in Ecclesiastes. Now, you need the whole Bible to get the answers, uh, but the issues that are brought up are shared issues among anyone who's been made in the Imago Dei. Now, at the end of the book, the writer tells us that even though Solomon, or one writing in the stead of, or tradition of Solomon, uh, is the human author, this book comes from one shepherd. Chapter 12, verse 11. Like, this is God's word to us meant to lead us into a path of wisdom. 
Now, I would like to raise uh, three questions or, or look at this, this uh, sermon today in three particular parts. I'll try to hit the first two quickly so we can actually get into the verses. But I think this is important as we set the stage. All right. Number one, why study Ecclesiastes? Number two, how to study Ecclesiastes? And number three, applying gospel hope to the opening of Ecclesiastes. All right, so quickly, why study Ecclesiastes for quick reasons? Number one, it helps us to be honest about the troubles of life. I don't know if you find church to be a place where you can be honest about the trouble of life. Ecclesiastes invites that. Solomon does not sugarcoat things at all, right? The writer is not an atheist. He believes in God, as we're going to see, but he is honest. And I think uh, that's very refreshing. Now, with that, number two, it helps us to ask the, the biggest questions that people have today, right, and apply the gospel to these questions. That, that are questions I've already mentioned, the meaning of life, uh, where joy is found. Does God care about injustice? The author is wrestling through all of this, and the author is not satisfied with pat answers. Okay, this is, this is not a bumper sticker uh, uh, theology, right, uh, that you can just say something in a little, a little uh, formula and, and all of your questions are answered. No, he's, he's wrestling through it. Thirdly, this book will help us, by God's grace, I pray, to worship God better because Ecclesiastes gives us a glorious picture of a good God who is creator, who is sovereign, who is wise, who is just. And in knowing this God, we're led to worship him. And finally, this book should help us to live for God's glory and not ourselves. Next week, as we look at Solomon's search for satisfaction, one of the, the common things you'll see is how much he talks about himself, right? Um, and what you see is a very self-centered orientation that leaves him unsatisfied because we are not meant to live for ourselves, but rather for God's glory, right? So we're going to see this, that, that having everything almost killed Solomon, Therefore, the secret of life is not having everything. If anybody had everything, it was him. And he's writing, it's all vanity. Therefore, the secret must be somewhere else. It must be living for someone else. And so, we'll dig into that. Now, second section here, how to study Ecclesiastes. Just three uh, uh, ways for you to think through Ecclesiastes as you read it, as we study it together. We can read it as God's wisdom literature. If, if you're new to the Bible... Uh, the Bible has various genres, like uh, movies would have uh, different uh, types of film. Well, we have law, prophets, writings, gospels, epistles, and so on. Well, wisdom is, is where Ecclesiastes is, is located. And it, it is alongside of books like Proverbs, Job, Song of Solomon. Uh, and uh, it gives us uh, a bit of a different emphasis, but it's still wisdom literature, right? So Proverbs emphasizes ethics. It shows us how life generally works. We can make sense of Proverbs, right? How many of you read Proverbs? Some of you may read it every day, and then you turn to Ecclesiastes, and you're like, I don't understand that one. Like, I like the Proverbs. That makes sense. Uh, I don't know what he's getting on about. Uh, so there's, there's a real ethical, like if you do this, this happens. Uh, Ecclesiastes will mess with you a bit. Job emphasizes suffering. Song of Solomon, as we're going to see, Lord willing, in a few months, emphasizes love. But this book, Ecclesiastes, is more philosophical. It's about meaning. It's about joy. One writer has said, Proverbs is like math. Ecclesiastes is like music. All mood and melody and tone. Because it is wisdom, it's often tricky. You read it and you're like, I don't know what that says. Maybe Tony can help me. 
Probably not. I guess it's tricky. <laughs> like uh, 716, be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Sounds like a great verse for nominalism, just being indifferent. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked. So maybe a little wicked, but don't be overly wicked. What on earth does that mean? There are many great verses in this book uh, that I love. Like it's better to be a living dog than a dead lion. Think on those things, okay? <laughs> Selah. <laughs> it's wisdom. So we'll try to sort through it all together. Remember, it is a difficult book, okay? Now, it's also a unified message. Even though there's a lot of stuff that, you know, we're going to try to sort through, I think you could summarize Ecclesiastes with a little shorthand description that the writer is telling us to fear God in everything and to enjoy God in the little things. That comes by a handful of statements uh, in the book. The first one, to fear God, is how the whole book ends. If you've never read Ecclesiastes, he's dealing with all of these questions and all of these problems of life, and he concludes with this, the end of the matter, all that has been heard, fear God and keep his commandments. Okay, so a lot of questions in life that you have will never be resolved. Just realize that. Many, many questions. But we're not in the dark. We have God's word. How do we live this life? We fear God, that is, we revere him, we submit to him, we worship him. How? By keeping his commandments. So, nothing else, this is what we're to be about. A meaningful life is built on living in light of God's revealed word, okay? Now, enjoying God, chapter two, verses 24 uh, and uh, following, is one of the handful of what's called enjoyment passages in Ecclesiastes that is also like these little summary statements in which he's, he's wrestling through all his questions and then he arrives at this conclusion. Like chapter two, verse 24, there is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God for apart from him who can eat or who can have enjoyment. Now that same idea pops up of enjoying God, receiving his grace, receiving gifts as coming from the hand of God. It is an echo of Eden, where our first parents before the fall enjoyed their toil, they enjoyed their food, they enjoyed God's grace. And even though we now live in a fallen world, we can still enjoy these things. Even though the world is still groaning, we can still enjoy them, we should enjoy them. And we long for the day in which Jesus will make all things new. Now, in the nine sermons that we're gonna have in Ecclesiastes, you're gonna hear either fear God or enjoy God, and some weeks, both. Like, this is gonna be the, 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 the application that we just keep bouncing back to. That, what is this book telling us? It's telling us as followers of Jesus Christ, we are to worship our God with reverence and awe. By following his word, and we are to receive his good gifts. Our God is abundantly gracious to us. Both are important, because in the fear of God, we acknowledge God's holiness, and enjoying God, we acknowledge God's grace. He is holy and he is good. And so with all of the questions, we just keep coming back to those applications. All right, number three, we read Ecclesiastes in light of the crucified, risen, and returning Christ. I've already alluded to this and we've talked a lot about this throughout the year, so I won't uh, belabor the point so we can get into verse one finally. But Ecclesiastes chapter 12 is not the end of the Bible. We are to read uh, every text in light of the whole story of the Bible. If you're new to the Bible, you should know that the Bible is a unified book. 
of which Jesus is the hero. And Jesus taught us in Luke 24 that we are to read the law, the prophets, and the writings in light of his person and work. Ecclesiastes is one of the books that falls under the writings. Therefore, when we read Ecclesiastes, we should not read it as though Jesus' feet never touched the earth. We should read Ecclesiastes recognizing all that Jesus said and all that Jesus did. Jesus himself called himself the one greater than Solomon, who has the words of eternal life. Jesus is the embodiment of wisdom. If you want to know what it looks like to fear God and keep his commandments, we look to him. Jesus is the one who crushed the author of Ecclesiastes' greatest fear, death, through his death and resurrection. And Jesus is the one who's going to make all things new, who's going to uh, reverse the curse, right? And so how do you live life under the sun? You live it in the sun, Jesus Christ. You live it in him. You see the, 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 the king, the Lord Jesus, ruling and reigning over the sun. And so as you think about Ecclesiastes, recognize that in much of the book, he has a pessimistic outlook because he's seeing life devoid of God. God doesn't appear until chapter 2, verse 24, with one exception, and not there as the solution to the problem. Even the verses we're looking at today is what life looks like under the sun without God in the picture. And so we need a whole Bible to interpret Ecclesiastes. Now with that, just one other note. Use Romans 8 as you read Ecclesiastes. As Paul begins, or as the writer of Ecclesiastes talks about vanity of vanity, it's the same word in the Greek version of the Old Testament in Romans 8 when Paul talks about creation being subjected to futility. Right? That, that this creation is groaning. Like he's he agreeing with Solomon, but he's giving a solution that the groaning is going to give way to glory. That's what I mean by reading it in light of the person and work of Christ, his coming, his death, his resurrection, and his return. All right, all of that's introduction, and now we can get to verse 1. <laughs> I'll go quick again, maybe. Verse 1, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now, the book is written by the words of the preacher. There's a whole big discussion on this, uh, huge debates on the first couple of verses on two particular words. One is the word for preacher. Uh, many people have words for preacher, but what the technical name for preacher here. Uh, and this word vanities in verse 2. Just a couple of thoughts here. Most likely, the preacher here, this uh, son of David, king in Jerusalem, refers to Solomon. Uh, but it could be that one is writing uh, kind of like a documentary of Solomon. Uh, either way, it's meant to cause us to reflect on Solomon's actual life. And so it's, it's the words of the preacher. That's a Hebrew word, kohelet, which means to gather. Kohelet is where we get this word ecclesiastes, a Greek version of that. It's like a, a ecclesia, the church. A kohelet, a teacher here, is one who gathers. So uh, Solomon is like the pastor gathering a people to, to give wisdom on how to live. The leader of an assembly. All right, verse 2, he begins with some shocking words. If you want to get someone's attention, that's a good way to do it. Everything is vanity. Now, this is a word that appears over and over in Ecclesiastes, this Hebrew, Hebrew word, uh, hevel, hevel, or hebel. Um, and often it's translated as uh, meaninglessness. 
uh, everything is or meaningless. Everything is meaningless. But that's really not the best uh, translation of the word itself. Plus, Solomon tells, tells us not everything is meaningless in the book. The word vanity and, and hevel comes from this idea of, of a breath, a vapor. It's, uh, it's like James talks about life being a, a vapor, or if you've got kids, maybe soap bubbles, right? That, that it's just, boom, it's, it's gone. But it's more than just the fleeting nature of life. It's also the elusive nature of life, the enigmatic nature of life. It's hard to make sense of this short life. Everything, therefore, is, is vanity. Now, again, as I said, this is not the whole picture. Ecclesiastes 1 through 11 is life devoid of God. He doesn't mention God at all in the first 11 verses. This pessimism is meant to shock and take you on a journey that will hopefully lead you to faith. But for now, it's vanity, vanity. So we're led to ask the question, really? Is everything vanity? Is it all hevel? Well, Solomon brings up his first argument to prove the point, and that is toil. Now, he'll talk a lot about toil, a lot about work, and that's important because we need a good understanding of our work. And he says many good things about it, but here it's negative. And he brings up the problems of toil, right? Um, And he says, what does man gain by all of his toil? And the short answer is, he'll go through it poetically, but the short answer is nothing. So be encouraged. (laughs) What does your work profit? Nothing. And in verses 4 to 11, he paints a stark picture of what life can feel like, what your toil can feel like, devoid of God. And he says basically three things regarding your work. Nothing really changes. Nothing is really new. And nothing is really remembered. Now that is a great sermon, isn't it? How's your work going? Nothing changes, nothing's new, nothing will be remembered. This is what life can feel like under the sun. So consider with me now our toil and its vanities. And then in keeping with our principle of interpretation, let's then consider our toil in Christ. Okay? So our toil and its vanities. Nothing really changes. Verse 4 is striking when he says, A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Now, he's going to give us a few pictures of creation that seems to make no significant impact, like the sun and the water and the wind. There's a lot of action, but a lot of what seems to be monotony and uh, a lack of impact. And here he says, a generation goes and a generation comes. Notice he doesn't say a generation comes and a generation goes. That would imply progression, impact, but it's actually goes and comes, which implies replacement. We are just replaced. The generation is gone and another one replaces it. And what remains is the earth. It was spinning before I got here and it will spin when I leave. Now again, this is is quite an introduction, isn't it? You think about generations for a moment. Generally speaking, there are about five generations, four or five generations alive at one time. Right now, we have generation Z. That's if you were born from 95 to the present. We have millennials born from 1980 to 1994. We have the great generation, Gen X, right? That's mine, 1965 to 1979. We have the boomers from 1944 
1964. I see you guys waving your hands. And then we have the silent generation from 1928 to 1945. That's when they were born. We don't have a lot of those around. Now, I'm the third generation here of this group. And uh, what the boomers are doing, and they know this, this is not Debbie Downer, they're dying. Okay? Most silent generation people have died, which means Generation X is next. I'm going to die. I read Ecclesiastes, and that's my conclusion. I'm going to die, and I, nobody's going to remember me, and nothing is significant. So, you know, so that's why the, the generations read Ecclesiastes differently, you know? Like today, like the Gen Z will say, hey, man, look at this new iPad. Look at this new Fitbit. And, you know, you've got uh, boomers saying, meh, we're all going to die. Um, that's not new. It's not new. It's just something new. And, and, and the, the Generation X, we're saying, man, this Ecclesiastes, this is some good stuff. Some good stuff in here. So this is kind of like a midlife crisis sermon series for me, uh, to be honest with you. Um, and he's saying here, these, these generations, they go and they come. And later he's going to say, nobody even remembers them. So let me just illustrate his point. Maybe you can name your, well, hopefully you can name your grandparents, but maybe you can name your great-grandparents. I don't know how many of us in this room could actually name our great-great-great or great-great-great-great-grandparents. That, that has to be a small minority. We can't even name our own family in just four generations. It doesn't take long for a person to be forgotten. Doesn't Ecclesiastes then make you feel something of this brevity, something of this, this vanity? Now, to prove the point that your work, there's, there's nothing that's really changing, he goes to creation and he gives you some examples. First the sun and then the wind and then the sea. Okay, so the sun, he says, it rises and it goes down and it hastens to the place where uh, it, it rises so the sun, it just does the same thing over and over again. And it's the same sun that Abraham saw. It's not a new sun. It's the same sun and it does the same thing. And he's saying essentially that we are like the sun. We're doing a lot of the same things and there's a lot of monotony to it. It's kind of like running on a treadmill. Don't you kind of laugh when you ask someone, hey man, did you go to the gym? Yeah, yeah, I ran about five miles. Oh, you run on the treadmill? Yeah. Well, you didn't run anywhere, actually. Like, you just, <laughs> you sweat a lot, but you didn't go anywhere, pal. You're actually in the same spot. Um, it's kind of like that with the sun. It just, it's just the th same thing over and over again. Now, again, compare this with what the rest of the Psalms say, for example, about the sun or creation. Like, creation leads us to worship. Like, the heavens declare the glory of God. Like, the sun is like a, a man about to get married. Like, it's, it's triumphant language. It's happy language. But here, Ecclesiastes said, nah, same old son. Does the same thing over and over, just like you. It's a, you see, it's a worldview devoid of God. When you take God out of the picture, you view all of creation differently. You view all of life differently. Now, he's going to have God in the picture, but you've got to keep coming back. It's not here in the first 11 verses. But that's what he's talking about. Now, the wind, he says, what about the wind? He basically says, the wind goes round and round. Some days it blows this way. Some days it blows that way. It's a whole lot of commotion and not a lot of change. 
Just like us, we can be very busy, we can be doing a lot of things, but there doesn't seem to be significant change. And the streams and the rivers. He says, they run into the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. They're never really satisfied. The Mississippi flows into the Gulf of Mexico, which flows into the Atlantic Ocean, but the ocean never really overflows. It's just water is evaporating. There's no big change going on. And it seems to be the same thing over and over again. To put it in our vernacular, you do the dishes today. What do you have to do tomorrow? The dishes, right? Or you got little kids, right? At 5 p.m., there are Legos everywhere. And you clean up from those, those, those little angels. And what, what do you see tomorrow at 5 o'clock? More Legos. It's Ecclesiastes. So if you're a parent, you should like this stuff. This is real talk from, from Ecclesiastes. And he says in verse 8, there's a weary monotony to it all. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. And reflecting back on the sea, not being satisfied, never being really fulfilled, he says it's like our eyes. Our eyes are never really satisfied with seeing. Now, if Solomon could say that, what would he say about our day? In which we see stuff all the time. We cannot go without uh, watching things or looking at our devices but we're never satisfied with all that seeing and all that hearing we're never satisfied. So to summarize, he says, our toil seems insignificant and our lives are dissatisfied. Maybe you begin to resonate with Solomon. It's Monday morning, you wake up, what do you do? Maybe you brush your teeth, good idea. Grab a bite to eat maybe or a coffee, you go to work and you take a break for lunch, you go back to work, you clock out, you go home, maybe hit the gym. Maybe play with your kids, maybe go see a friend, you eat dinner, you maybe read or watch something, and then you go to sleep, and Tuesday, you do it all over again, and Wednesday and Thursday. Weekends are a bit different, but not in any real significant way. We just do some stuff between the sleeps, right? And Solomon's like, it's just like the sun, just boom, 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 boom. Nothing really changes, he says. Now, all of this, again, is intended to force you to think about your life. It's intended to, to ask, to, to raise the question, why do you do what you do? Right? And, and is this really true? Uh, is there another outlook? Is there another perspective? This is his first lament, though. And if we don't actually stop to ask the hard questions, what happens is we just move from one identity crisis to another bouncing around like a pinball because we're in this monotonous cycle and we're looking for meaning and we go from one thing to the other. But Ecclesiastes is going to point us to the solution to these troubles. But first he says nothing really changes. Secondly, he says nothing is really new. Verse 9, what has been said will be and what has been done will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. Solomon's speaking here about the fundamental aspects of life not changing. Nothing is really new. Well, now we see this in very obvious ways, don't we? Sometimes with things like fashion. As the kids are like, oh, this is vintage. Like this is the 80s, pal. Like we wore that stuff, okay? Uh, that's, not, that's not new. Uh, that's really not vintage. Uh, that's just 80s. You know, a government is still a government. 
People still work with their hands. We still make stuff out of the same basic raw materials. We still wear clothes. We still sleep. I mean, even in baseball, I mean, uh, the Astros may steal signs through video, but we've been stealing signs for ages. That's not new. Uh, even landing on the moon is just another form of exploration. When viewed against the backdrop of history, newness fades away. Nothing new. And all the boomers are like, amen. We've been around. We've seen it. And then finally, he says, to close out this very encouraging, positive, uplifting message, nothing is really remembered. <laughs> so think about that paradigm for a moment. You're getting up tomorrow. What can motivate you? Nothing's going to change. Nothing's going to be new. And nothing will be remembered. How about we go back to bed, right? <laughs> now, again, this is, I'm going somewhere, so you hang with me, okay? Don't leave yet, okay? Please don't leave yet. Um, nothing will be, I went to my alma mater a few years ago to speak in chapel, and I got to speak to the baseball team. And would you believe none of the baseball team had heard of me? <laughs> they had never heard of me. Do you realize I played shortstop? I was a starter for four years. I led, I set the career record for walks. How's that? Walks. They don't know me. You won't be remembered. Even closer to home, I have a friend of mine who's a pastor in Belfast. He said some of his church members went to uh, England and they were in London. And they wanted to see Charles Spurgeon's church where the Spurge preached. And none of the people on the street knew who he was. They're like, hey, we'd like to see Charles Spurgeon. Who? Now, I'm quite sure if the Prince of Preachers will be forgotten. Marita will definitely be forgotten. It's a very sobering reality, isn't it? Zinzendorf said it well. Preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. I'm quite sure the latter will happen, right? Of course, he will not be forgotten because he said that quote, but that's, that's another story. That's kind of a proverb, right? So nothing's going to be remembered. So here, here's my question, and I think what this fallen condition of Ecclesiastes is driving us to, again, is hope in Christ. Here are three false solutions to the dilemma that's presented here. Escapism, nihilism, and hedonism. Escapism simply means this. You try not to think about these frustrations. And you don't have to do it even with drugs or alcohol. You can do it with endless Netflix. You can do it with sports. You, you can try not to think about death. You can try not to think about meaning. You can, you can try not to think about the fact that uh, you probably won't be remembered. And escapism is big business. I mean, people are spending millions of dollars doing escapism. That's not the route. That's not the biblical worldview. Nihilism is a, maybe a new word for some of you. It's just a philosophical belief that life has no meaning. Like, like there is no objective value. Or hedonism. Since, since, you know, this is the case, since uh, we read Ecclesiastes 1 through 11, let's just eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Just live it up. And we're going to see next week in particular how that won't satisfy. Solomon ha never had an unfulfilled fantasy. And he's miserable. Therefore, my friends, let me take you to our toil in Christ. The way that we deal with these frustrations these thorns and thistles is by setting our hope on the gospel. 
And this is what I want to say. In contrast to Ecclesiastes 1 through 11, as we ponder Christ, this is what we see. Christ's work changed everything. Instead of seeing it as nothing changes, I want to remind you that Jesus changed everything. I want to remind you that in contrast to Ecclesiastes 1 through 11, that there is nothing new. Christ's work today is new. His work was new, and his work will be new. There is newness in Christ. There's newness in the monotony. There's newness in doing the dishes. There's newness in cleaning up those Legos. Thirdly, Christ's work will be remembered. We remember it every Sunday by taking the Lord's Supper. Do this in remembrance of me. And for those who are in Christ, we know that our work is not in vain. We're told that in 1 Corinthians 15, 58. We're told that our work can be joyous and our work is rewarded. So we've read the sad news. Here's the good news. Jesus Christ's work on the cross changed everything. His work changed it all. And his work was new. He inaugurated a new covenant, didn't he? He made us new. If anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. Ezekiel says, in the new covenant, God will give us a new heart. And one day, Jesus will make all things new. And so, thankfully, Ecclesiastes is not the last book of the Bible. Revelation is. There's solution as we read this text in light of the whole. The frustrations of this life won't last forever, my friends. The feeling of futility and vanity and the pain of death will not last forever. So whatever you do in life, know this Christ. This Christ who says, what would it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? Solomon says you, can pro you profit nothing from your work. It won't satisfy and Jesus adds to it and you'll lose your soul. So don't toil without reference to Christ, but rather be wise and know this Christ. And his work is remembered. And my friends, today it is good news to know that our labor is not in vain. I love how Jesus says, if you just give a cup of cold water even in my name, you will not lose your reward. You see, your work is remembered by the one who matters most, Jesus Christ. Every single aspect of obedience Everything you do in Luke 14, if you're going to have a party, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. They cannot repay you, but you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Jesus remembers it. Therefore, life does have meaning, but not apart from him. Not apart from him. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Ecclesiastes 1 through 11 tells us about the frustrations and toil of a fallen world. The gospel tells us how Jesus will redeem it all. So don't go the route of escapism. Don't go the route of nihilism. Don't go the route of hedonism. Go the route of Christ-centered faith. Jesus would do more for us than Solomon could ever do. For Jesus Christ, my friends, stood underneath the sun for us. He would defeat death through his death and resurrection. He will return and restore paradise for us. And through him, we fear God and keep his commandments. Through him, because of him, we can receive little things as signs of God's amazing grace to us. 
Jesus speaks to the concerns of Ecclesiastes and he says, take heart, I have overcome the world. Happiness and meaning and hope are found in our God through our Lord Jesus Christ, the only one who can satisfy our souls. Thanks be to God for his word and for the good news. Let's live on it as we live out this routine of our lives that the Lord has given us. Let us fear God and keep his commands in everything and let us enjoy God, receiving his grace, even in the little things, all made possible as we enter into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for your word today. Give you glory for the good news of the gospel. What a sad world it would be without the good news. Grateful. Grateful for a whole Bible. Grateful for the end of the Bible. It tells us Jesus wins and he'll wipe tears off of our faces. I pray that when we feel like we're in the middle of Ecclesiastes 1, you would take us to Revelation 22 and remind us of who we are and what's coming our way. Even now, may you deepen our gratitude for Christ as we remember his death in the Lord's Supper. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.